Welcome to today's edition of Insights from the Commonwealth Club, a weekly broadcast with thoughtful perspectives from the club's programming. Today we hear from two prominent politicians who share their experiences of entering politics and the teamwork they had to embrace to be effective. Jackie Spear was a 28-year-old staffer when she joined Congressman Leo Ryan in Jonestown, Guyana. While recovering from what would become one of the most harrowing tragedies in recent history, Spear had to choose. Would she become a victim or a fighter? You know, there's a plan for each of us. Sometimes we're not privy to that plan, but there is a plan. Later, we'll hear from another well-known lifelong politician, California's 24th and 29th Governor Jerry Brown. What does it take to serve as governor of the country's largest economy? Being able to look over the landscape and see trouble and stop it before it becomes trouble is very important. We'll be back shortly to hear from Jackie Spear and Jerry and Ann Gust Brown on Insights from the Commonwealth Club. First, a brief message from the Commonwealth Club. We hope you're doing as well as you can during the coronavirus crisis and that you're taking all necessary precautions to protect your health and the health of those around you. In light of the continued need to prevent the contagion, the club has canceled all of its on-site programs for the foreseeable future. We are, however, very excited to confirm the club's programming has continued through online delivery. Please watch the club's website at commonwealthclub.org online for listings of all our upcoming live digital programs. Since shelter-in-place was mandated, virtually all of our online programming has been free, and as of March 15th, we have brought to you over 150 thought-provoking programs for you to view at home and participate in with live Q&A on YouTube. The club's radio broadcast has continued as usual, both locally and nationally, with regularly featured programs you expect in the club. To help support our ongoing effort, we've added a donation option to each program's registration page. Our on-site program and private event rental income, on which the club depends, has dropped to zero, so we would be deeply grateful for your donation. And please join the conversation on the club's Facebook page and our members' LinkedIn page, where we'll continue the discussion on the current coronavirus epidemic, how it's changing our lives, and the economic impact it's playing on the global stage. Stay well. Thanks for listening. And now, on to our program. I'm Gloria Duffy, President and CEO of the Commonwealth Club, and this is Insights. Thank you for joining us today as we explore the qualities that make a great public leader. Our first segment follows the powerful story of a woman who, out of tragedy, found her courage to get started in politics. Later, we will take a behind-the-scenes look at the unusual teamwork that took place in the governor's mansion while Jerry Brown served his final two terms as California's leader. Up first, it's a tragic story. In the 1970s, Representative Leo Ryan represented California's 11th district south of San Francisco. In 1978, he was killed at the airport in Guyana after visiting the Jonestown colony of Jim Jones People's Temple Cult. In the same attack, Ryan's aide Jackie Spear was shot five times at point-blank range. Left for dead, she made the choice to survive against daunting odds, which empowered her with a resolve to run for office and become a vocal proponent for human rights. Hers is a story of true resilience that has inspired others to draw strength from adversity to do what is right, no matter what challenges lie ahead. Now a member of Congress from California's 14th District, Speer recently published her memoir recounting her experiences as a widow, a mother, a congresswoman, and a fighter. Here she is in conversation with Barbara Marshman, the former editorial pages editor of the San Jose Mercury News. Thank you. It's a home crowd. They love it. It is. 
This is an amazing book. I was just saying to Jackie backstage, I have rarely read an autobiography of someone involved in public life and politics. I mean, that, that produces such a personal story. There, is, there are policy implications woven in, but it is primarily personal, very personal story. Want to talk about why you decided to do that? Let me just go back a little bit, because the People's Temple was a church located in San Francisco, and Jim Jones was very plugged into the political stratosphere there and had been appointed by then-Mayor George Moscone to the Housing Authority. And he had 2,000 members in his congregation. There were all these reports of abuse and defections And Congressman Ryan got engaged because a number of his constituents had young family members in their early 20s, late teens, that had gotten involved in the church and uh, had then gone off to Guyana. And so they came to Congressman Ryan seeking his help to find out if they were indeed safe. They were concerned about whether or not their letters were getting through. And so it was on that basis that Congressman Ryan decided um, to make the trip to Jonestown to determine whether or not people were being held against their will. So when we arrived, they showed us around, and it was pretty impressive. I mean, out of a literal jungle, they had carved a community with crops growing and a huge pavilion and cabins and a child care center and a medical clinic. And he had to be impressed. But what happened during the evening was we were interviewing many of these young adults and handing them letters and talking to them and trying to sense whether or not they had any qualms or did they want to come back home. And all of a sudden, no, we are very happy here. They all were getting married to someone in the People's Temple, and they had no interest in restoring ties with their families. So that was peculiar. But there was this sense of this roteness to it, that they had somehow been scripted. And then there was this show being put on for the congressman. And at one point, you've probably seen the clip on TV many times where he stands up and says, boy, it sure seems like everyone here is very happy. And the place erupts in applause and laughter. And, apl- and it was almost frenetic. It wasn't natural. And it went on for an extended period of time. The NBC reporter who was on the trip had been walking around the outside of the pavilion smoking a cigarette. And one of the members of the People's Temple slipped him a note with two names on it. So at the end of the evening, Don Harris walks up to Congressman Ryan and myself, and he shows us the note. And my heart sunk because I knew then that everything we had heard about was true, that people were being held there against their will. So that was the first moment that I really knew we were, we were in trouble. And from that point, how did your behavior change? What did you do from that point of realization on? Or was there not much you could do? So, it, you know, it's late at night. I was escorted to the cabin that I was staying in that, was, that housed, I think, four other young women. And I was given the top bunk. And these cabins had tin roofs. And it was raining very hard that night. So the, the sound was peppering the, um, the cabin. And I was awake the entire night. And I was just trying to figure out how we were going to get these individuals out. So the next morning, 
I uh, identified Monica Bagby, took her to her cabin. She was getting her things, although there was a, a guard standing in front of the door, and I was fearful that maybe something else was going to happen. But he let her in. She got her belongings and came back to the pavilion. And then all of a sudden, more people wanted to leave and more people wanted to leave. So the tension grew. It was an emotional powder keg. And it was during that time that Don Harris interviews Jim Jones. And Jim Jones says, I don't know why these people are lying and carrying on like that. And then shortly thereafter, after I was taking all these oral affidavits, I was taking the first group out because we didn't have enough planes. We had ordered a second plane, but there were still another 40 people that wanted to leave, which gets lost in the discussion of Jonestown many times. So Congressman Ryan was going to stay behind for the second airlift. And I gathered all the people for the first airlift into the bed of the dump truck that we were on. And we started to leave. All of a sudden, Larry Layton comes on to the truck, and, and he had been espousing how wonderful the People's Temple was and how his sister, who had defected, was just a druggie and had all these issues. And all of a sudden, he's on the, on the truck, and I'm thinking, this doesn't make sense. He had a big yellow poncho on. So we're starting to take off, and the truck stops because it got stuck in the mud. Meanwhile, up at the pavilion where Congressman Ryan was, there was a knifing attempt on him. So there's this huge outcry from the pavilion. The truck's not going anywhere at the moment. And all of a sudden, out walks Congressman Ryan in his blood-stained shirt at this point. He gets into the cab of the truck, and we take off for the airstrip. Unbeknownst to us, following us at some distance is this tractor trailer with seven gunmen on it. So we get to the airstrip, and I start determining who's going to be on each of the planes. And a little Guyanese boy had scurried onto the plane, and I'm thinking, we have no room. I'm trying to coax this little boy out. So my back is, is to the airstrip as the ta- tractor trailer comes onto the airstrip. And then all of a sudden they started shooting. I didn't even know what, what was happening. I didn't, it didn't register that those were bullets it was just these sounds. And I, I turned around. Congressman Ryan had been hit, and there was blood gushing out of his neck. And then as I started to move towards him, he was shot again and fell. And so then I ran under the plane and tried to hid behind one of the wheels. And you were shot five times? So they then came among us and shot us at point-blank range. Congressman Ryan was shot 45 times. And... I was lying on my left side uh, with my head down, pretending that I was dead. And then they came and just peppered the right side of my body with bullets. And you were there for 22 hours before medical help arrived. It is astonishing when you read about the surgeries and everything that had to be done that, that you did make it. So you came back, you had six or eight weeks of intensive treatment and then recovery? Were all your surgeries during that time or did some of them? Most of them were during that time. I uh, was then cared for at the Oak Knoll Naval Hospital in the East Bay where I had uh, care for about a year and where I had one subsequent surgery. 
So after that, as you're coming through that, and I'm sure this is a mental process as you go along, how did you decide what you were going to do next, and how do you think it might have been different from what you would have done otherwise? I I spoke to 800 high school seniors today, um, (laughs) and I um, told them that, you know, there's a plan for each of us. Sometimes we're not privy to that plan, but there is a plan, and I had applied to two colleges, Stanford and UC Davis, and Stanford rejected me. Um, I've never let them forget it. Um, (laughs) And, you know, because I was at UC Davis, I was 20 minutes from the state capitol, and that's how my, my, you know, passion for public policy started. Um, But I never thought I had what it took to run for public office. And I was telling the, the young people today, don't let anyone trample on your dream. And don't, don't ever think that people don't have self-doubts. We all have self-doubts. I didn't think I could do this. So I decided to run for Congressman Ryan's seat. On the very last day that you could take out papers. So I come home on a Friday night. The last day to take out papers to run was Monday. There already were 11 candidates in the race who had been running for over two months. Um, So I go down to the county courthouse. I'm in a sling. Um, I had no radial nerve, so I could not really use my right hand. And I take out papers. And I ran a six-week campaign and raised (laughs) $25,000. Now, this is 79 now, early 79. So, uh, But still, that was pretty pathetic. And... um, (laughs) And I lost. But as I told the young people today, losing is really the first step to succeeding. Because that taught me that um, I I could do this. That I knew as much or more than the other people running for his seat. And that, you know, it was not anything to be ashamed of because I had lost. Another member of our audience asks... What are the next steps needed in gun violence reform? And I think you should tell your story of uh, the legislation. Okay. So obviously I'm a great proponent of gun violence prevention. When I was in the state assembly, I was asked by uh, then-Senator Dave Roberti to carry the assault weapon ban on the assembly floor. So I was called a jockey. So I'm jockeying the bill on the assembly floor, which I'm also a co-sponsor of. And I'm presenting the bill, and then all of a sudden one of my colleagues raises his mic, and that's an indication they want to be recognized. He's recognized by the pro tem, and he says, Ms. Spear, I have a question for you. I yield. Ms. Spear, I have a question for you. I had to say it a second time. And then he says, have you ever shot an assault weapon And I look at him and I'm thinking, are you that stupid? (laughs) So then he he repeats it again. Have you ever shot an assault weapon? So much as to say, well, how can you take, carry a bill banning them if you haven't even shot one? So I turned to him and I says, no, I have not shot an assault weapon. But let me ask you a question. Have you ever been shot by an assault weapon? (laughs) And he sits down, and uh, his colleague behind him says, good job, Ted, Uh, referring to Ted Baxter on the Mary Tyler Moore show, who always 
Uh, and so the, the, the assembly floor is quiet, and then the, the roll call is called. The bill flies off the assembly floor, and this shows you the difference between uh, then and now. That bill was signed into law by then Republican Governor Pete Wilson. And the original version was signed into law by then Republican George Duke Majan. So it was an issue in the not so distant past when Democrats and Republicans could come together and vote in a bipartisan fashion. Now, the bill that uh, got off the House floor, H.R. 8, got off with bipartisan support. I think there were six or eight Republicans that voted for it. And it is simply, simply a comprehensive background check. It closes the loopholes that exist if uh, you are a felon, if you are deemed mentally ill or have committed a misdemeanor domestic violence. You're not supposed to be able to own a gun. That's the law. And that's why we have background checks. And they're instant background checks. In most places, you just can buy it right then and there. Here in California, we have a three-day waiting period. But the loophole was that you could buy the gun online, or you could buy it at a gun show, or you could buy it from a private party. 40% of the guns are bought by private parties. So it was all those circumstances that created opportunities for people who shouldn't have guns to get guns. So it is now on the Senate side. Whether or not it's even taken up will be very surprising. But as I said to this group of young people today, we will have gun violence prevention and assault weapons bans as soon as the ossified baby boomers are kicked out of Congress and all of you young people are elected. Switching to current politics, a member of our audience says, as a moderate Democrat, I'm worried about the rise of the far left I'm afraid that the uh, two ideals will divide us further in the next election, 2020. What is your take? You've been more or less a moderate Democrat over the years. I know Silicon Valley likes you. (laughs) Sometimes they do, and sometimes they don't. Uh, (laughs) Political leader all the time. So I would say that you know this this freshman class is made up of. 61 or 62 new members, many of them won in districts that Trump won in 2016. So our ability to retain a majority in the House is going to be um, somewhat related to our ability to make public policy that appeals to all Americans. Now, having said that, you know, the progressive agenda is... Is, is not one that we should necessarily be afraid of. I mean, health care for everyone is something that every industrialized country, every industrialized country, but the United States of America, has universal health care. And we spend more money on health care than any of these other industrialized countries, and we have worse outcomes. So a a Medicare for all program that would be phased in over time really makes a lot of sense. Now, it probably wouldn't be the Canadian model. It would probably be more like the German model. But 
I, I don't know that that's something that any of us should be afraid of. But I do think we're very cognizant of the fact that there were a lot of moderates that got elected and that our policies have to reflect the interests of all those who serve. How do we prevent the McCarthyism rhetoric from emerging in 2020 as a powerful, galvanizing, American-only versus communist rhetoric? I'm more concerned about the hate and vitriol. I'm concerned about the white nationalist movement. I just read coming over here, we've now identified seven members in the military who are white nationalists, and it was identified through their social media. We, we, can't, we can't engage in that in this country. Yeah. And yet it's been almost promoted. So it's really important for us to shut that down. Speaking of social... Speaking of social media, several people have asked about what you think of the role of social social media in the coming election, particularly Mm. presidential in 2020. Um, And the overall value of social media is, is it on the whole a good thing or... Having observed it, with it being basically non-existent when you started your, totally non-existent when you started your political career to now, what do you feel um, is positive, negative about it? So social media is here to stay. But let me tell you what I'm really afraid of. I serve on the Intelligence Committee. So I've seen up close and personally how easy it was for the Russians to intervene in our elections with the ads, with the creating of communities, with um, the hiring of people to create rallies, an effort to divide our country. And they did it pretty cheaply. And because we are such an open society, we are really ripe for the plucking by Russia and by China. Do you know how China... um, uses LinkedIn, they have an open book. It's like their yellow pages of scientists and engineers in the United States that they can um, befriend or, or ping and ask them to come to a conference and attempt over a period of time to um, either indoctrinate them or get them uh, to become an agent for them. And here's a source that we see and use for, for, for good, and yet it's being used by others in a very uh, negative way. So both China and Russia in particular engage in a lot of uh, efforts on social media to undermine our democracy. What do you think is the potential at this point of the United Nations as far as its future utility? Do you think we should continue funding it or contributing to it? Well, the United Nations is a a very important component of our national security. And if you look at all of the various agencies within the United Nations, these are important programs that help us make friends around the world. You know, it was uh, Secretary Mattis who said at an Armed Services Committee hearing, 
when he was when the the State Department was being hollowed out, and there were many of us who were alarmed by it. And we asked him, "What are your feelings about what's happening in the State Department?" And he said, "The State Department is as critical to our national security as the Defense Department is." Do you want to hear a funny statistic? You know, there's this there's this idea by some that we spend way too way too much money on foreign aid. It's really budget dust in the budget of um, the federal government. And there are more persons who play in our military bands than there are diplomats in our foreign service. Wow. Talking about prisons, and probably goes back a, a bit to the um, the women you dealt with, how do you feel about the increased privatizations of prisons throughout the country? I think it's an abomination. It's, it's a way to feather the, the nests of uh, people who uh, have contributed to the campaigns of, mm-hmm. of some, and that it it, it kind of builds this whole um, industry around incarceration. You know, when I was in the state legislature, I took on the prison guards union um, just for fun. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and it, I, I ended up taking it on for, uh, not intentionally, actually. I was chairing a select committee on government oversight and we installed what we called was a red phone. And people could call the number and leave us whistleblowing cases. Um, tell us if there was something going on of waste, fraud, and abuse in the state government. And over the course of maybe a month and a half, most of the calls that came in were from the uh, corrections department. And then we started investigating it. And lo and behold, the contract for the prison guards union was seeing a 37% increase over the course of, I guess, three years to five years. Whereas the salaries for the professors at the University of California were going up only 3%. The contracts had all these provisions that allowed for um, you to call in sick today and I get double pay and then tomorrow I'll call in sick and you get double pay. So there were all these games that were being paid and the prison guards union was all about building its union. So it wanted more laws on the books and so they were big proponents of three strikes and and building that union. So for Duke Majin and Wilson and I believe uh, for Schwarzenegger and and Brown, and maybe even for Newsom, they would write million-dollar checks out to their campaigns in an effort to curry favor so that when their contracts came up, they would be held in high esteem. Jackie, thank you so much for doing this. Oh, my pleasure, Barbara. It's been a delightful evening. That was U.S. Representative Jackie Speer of California recounting some dramatic stories from her life and career. She was in conversation with Barbara Marshman. 
This program is produced by the Commonwealth Club. We host 500 thought-provoking programs each year with the most significant thought leaders and policymakers of the day. From the heart of Silicon Valley, we cover the spectrum of topics ranging from science, technology, and the climate to social issues, politics, and culture. Now we hear from another well-known lifelong politician, California's longest-serving governor, Jerry Brown, and his wife, Ann Gust Brown, became a successful team both in his campaign to reclaim the governor's office and during his second set of terms as governor. What does it take to serve as governor of the country's largest state, which is also the world's fifth-largest economy? Uh, But basically, it's avoiding the big screw-ups, getting very good people, and finding out what is wanted and needed, and then doing it. But it wasn't just Jerry Brown making things happen. In his final two terms in office, his co-pilot was his wife, Ann Gust Brown, an attorney and former executive vice president of The Gap. I focus on getting the people in, managing, getting the trains to run on time, those sorts of things. And Jerry is more the visionary. Join us as we listen in on the first public appearance by the former governor and first lady after they left office. It was a pleasure for me, Gloria Duffy, to be in conversation with Jerry and Ann. Now, I'm not going to do a traditional introduction because is there anybody here who doesn't know who Jerry Brown and Ann Gust Brown are? These are folks who always focus on cutting to the core of the topic and the material. And so that's just what we're going to do tonight. Not waste time on um, details and uh, pleasantries, although it's going to be very pleasant. So um, let's start by asking you both, two months out of public office, how's how's it feeling? Uh, Actually, it feels the same. (laughs) For you, yeah, I know, yeah. yeah. I don't, sweat you, the, I don't sweat the details. You don't sweat the details. I spend details, a lot of so. time thinking about big ideas. Yeah. I talk to people. I read books. I do stuff. So what's the difference? <laughs> I mean, governor, when you have to sign or veto bills, that's an issue. Every week we have to, I had to look at uh, 25 life for paroles. That's something. Uh, I approach the job, I think, in a, in a somewhat original way, uh, always looking for what, needed, what could be done they could be done because I was there, but nobody else. So I was always looking not to the flow of the ordinary activity, which will take place whether I'm there or not, but what kinds of intervention could I make? And so now I'm not doing that, but um, I'm still, in my own mind, kind of running things. <laughs> how, how about That's you? How, yes. is, how has life changed in the well, last couple months? It, it, it was a shock to leave office. Uh, and Jerry, right, he doesn't sweat the details, so it wasn't so shocking to him. Uh, but for me, you know, we had to get a car. We had been driven around for eight years. We didn't have a car anymore. I had to figure out, you know, how to move everything. He paid no attention to all of <laughs> the millions of boxes of, of papers and books, and he's still paying no attention to them. They're still at the house. So uh, all of the details of getting out of office, no longer having CHP protection, who is with you all the time, all of, and, and just the shock of, you're so immersed in something for eight years and a group of people, and then just one day you leave and it's gone. So it's, it's, it was very abrupt, uh, a bit shocking. It, it took me, and then to go to a ranch, you know, you couldn't go to something more extreme. We were in the hubbub and then we're off with some cows and coyotes. <laughs> uh, so... 
I found it shocking, but he's right. He would just be on the phone, and I don't think it shocked you nearly as much as it did me. So, but that, well, I guess that's good. You're very zen or something. <laughs> I, or maybe you don't realize you're not governor anymore. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I, <laughs> could be. <laughs> so we're going to go back and talk about your long political service, your... Uh, various roles, the history of your family, many other things. But I was struck in studying up on your recent lives by how the two of you were a team when you were governor and you were the first lady. Could you both talk a little bit about how you divided up responsibilities, and especially, Anne, how were you involved in the governance of the state through your relationship with Jerry? Well, when... Jerry and I had dated uh, for 15 years before we got married. He, he's into doing his due diligence. So um, we dated a long time, and uh, as many of you maybe know, I had a career. I was a lawyer. I was an executive at The Gap. I had a lot going on in my own life. Uh, but when we decided to get married, uh, Jerry, we also decided I'd be leaving The Gap and that I would run his uh, campaign for attorney general at that point which was kind of crazy on a number of levels because I've never run a political campaign in my life. And, you know, it is Willie Brown, who was here tonight, you know, said, this is crazy, Anne. You know, you don't become the campaign manager for your husband because, you know, when the stuff goes wrong on the campaign, you want to, you know, the first person you blame is the manager, and then when that's your wife, it's complicated. So, um, and it does, it's not good for a marriage and all that sort of stuff. So it was a lot of change for me and for the both of us because we went from sort of being a couple but having our own lives like normal people do uh, to, you know, completely me leaving a job, uh, starting something completely different, and getting married. <laughs> That was something, too. Um, so in any event, it worked a lot better than I thought. I did have trepidation about it, uh, to be together 24 hours a day and doing something difficult, like running a campaign. Uh, but it really did work well. And um, I think we really different, have different strengths. Jerry leaves me to doing all the detail stuff. He's more the visionary, so we sort of keep in our own lanes. And, uh, and then when he became attorney general, because I had managed a legal department before and, and had a lot of legal management and otherwise experience, I think I could fit into that role and helping him really well. Uh, so I think that went smoothly. But what do you, what do you think? Well, <clears throat> well, first of all, <laughs> you were worried because you never ran a campaign, but I've been doing nothing but campaigns. So. Correct. I knew, I knew about the politics, you knew how to run things, so put the two together, it worked very well. In the Attorney General's office, um, you know, the, a lot of people want to bring in all their political friends and cronies and managers and what have you, but uh, the way we did it was the, there was one fellow, uh, Jim Humes, uh, who Ann and I got to know and interviewed, and we made him uh, the head of the entire office. Uh, later, I made him a court of appeals judge. He's quite, quite skilled and uh, very well regarded. But anyway, the whole office ran with professional lawyers that are already there. And any kind of political input, I could provide. And uh, in legal matters, for example, in the countrywide case, uh, the office wasn't being very aggressive at all on the bank fraud. And then got uh, right into that and made sure that before the statute of limitations 
uh, expired, that the Attorney General of California had brought the proper action. But the point being, an office with thousands of people uh, was run by the people who know best the civil servants, and then just the two of us with a handful of other people that we, we uh, were able to bring. And that fits in with my general view, is that if you have very skilled people who know what they're doing, you don't need too many of them. If you don't, you have a lot of people, and then you know, just go around in circles. So that worked very well. And then the governor's office and helped me find some of the key players. Uh, she was in, uh, oversaw uh, human resource, the gap. And so we got some very skilled people. And that worked very well, too. So, and the amazing thing was, because uh, I, I know Hillary got in a little trouble in Bill's White House and other wives have gotten into trouble. Uh, but because people were always a little concerned about how I handled things, um, surprisingly or chaotically or whatever you want to call it, uh, people were very relieved that an orderly <laughs> manager was on the premises. So no one dared complain because the only alternative was me. <laughs> so actually it worked like a charm. And Anne, you'd been chief administrative officer of the Gap, so you knew, you knew how to make things run well. Correct, correct. I did. Uh, so yeah, that's, that's, I focus on getting the people in, managing, getting the trains to run on time, those sorts of things. And Jerry is m- more the visionary. And, and like you said, he has a very chaotic style as anyone who's worked for him would know he he can meetings with you can last hours and hours if not days and uh he just pulls in what's on his mind and whatever so someone needs to keep all of these things in in mind and manage it uh to an extent and that's that's always been more my skill but i don't have the vision that you i I would well you have a lot of vision (laughs) Uh, but i would say that government the governor's office is not about management. There is an element of management, but it's more, first of all, number one thing is avoiding scandal and screw-ups. That's number one. Because whatever you do, if you tend to do good things, but you have one big boo-boo, that's what people remember. So being able to look over the landscape and see trouble and stop it before it becomes trouble is very important. And then the other positive uh, aspect is what do you do? Uh, what's important? And uh, for me, things like the budget. Well, if you have a $27 billion deficit, it's pretty important that you do something about it. And we did. We got rid of it. So we didn't have to think a lot (laughs) because the problems showed up. And so we just had had to think about how you pay it off and how you raise the taxes and cut programs and work with the legislature. And I had to veto their budget once just to keep everything in line. Uh, So there are skills and there are tactics and there are maneuvers. Uh, But basically, it's avoiding the big screw-ups, getting very good people, and finding out what is wanted and needed and then doing it. And what was wanted and needed was put the, uh, the fiscal house in order and then pension reform and then... Uh, infrastructure with adequate gas tax funding and uh, workers' comp reform and water bond and rainy day fund and new formula for schools so that they got 30% more money based on the lower-income families. So you get a few ideas, uh, you make them work, and you do it in that framework. So I think we had the management, we had whatever the political um, component of that was, and as far as I know... It worked pretty good, so <laughs> I have no complaints. Uh, the, there was one little 
a little oh, factor. Please. Oh, no. One little factor, not a factor, huge factor. Um, from the day I took office, the recovery was already a year in, in going, by the way, the, the chart, the beginning of these recoveries. And from the first moment to the day I left and turned the lights out, California was growing year, month by month, always. Still growing, for that matter. So that was a night. People feel good. So I, by the way, I had nothing to do with that. That's <laughs> co- called the global economy. I helped avoid some screw-ups and fix the budget deficit and avoid a lot of crazy bills by vetoing them and a few <laughs> other things and stopping them um, by cajoling the legislature and all. But ba- basically, though, it's nice when things are going well. Because a lot of polling, when the economy is going well, they feel better about the executive, the leader, the president or the governor. When things get bad, then it's, it really takes skill to keep um, your popularity up. So we, we had that nice upward trajectory, which hasn't happened very often in California, maybe one other time. So you served two sets of terms as yep. governor. You were not there for the first one. Nope. Um, and it raises some questions about timing in politics. Yeah. So I'm old enough to remember your first set of terms and the, the rather far-reaching policies you set out at the time. Uh, solar energy, space satellites. Uh, and then you came back to a number of those issues in your second set of terms. And your timing was better to get, the, or the timing was better to get those things done the second time around. So some people see trends and they're prophetic, but then they're not able to move things forward because the timing or the understanding of others just isn't right. Um, So first of all, can you comment on what the continuities were between what you tried to do during the first set of terms and the second set of terms? And then how can we change our politics and our society maybe to provide more opportunity for farsighted ideas to be implemented when they're first uh, perceived and, and created? Well, I'd say first off, that when you talk about how can we change our politics, that's a pretty big statement. When you say politics, you mean the entire way America and the West is being governed, and you're going to change that with one person? Uh, we are reacting to events. A depression sets uh, a possible change in attitudes. And going from Hoover to Roosevelt, that, that did uh, allow for change, a new emerging role for uh, the federal government called the New Deal. And then World War II, that created another. So uh, big world events uh, d- determine uh, how we show up. And a leader can only work with what, what is there. And the time has to be ripe. So I did have an interest in the environment. The reason I had an interest early in the environment, first of all, this was happening. When my father was governor, I don't even think the word environment existed. Now we have environment, we have ecology, we have all sorts of those words. So uh, 1970 was Earth Day. That was the... Um, the first time that happened, 1970. I was running for Secretary of State. Uh, the Stockholm Conference on the Environment, the global uh, conference, was 1972. Uh, Rachel Carson wrote a book in the late 60s. Uh, so there was a, a, an awareness of, of the environment. The Clean Air Act happened in 1969. The, many of these uh, laws that came to be were happening 
around that period as the Vietnam War wound down. So it was only natural that I would have an interest, I did take an interest in the environment. So now coming later, um, because climate change is now such a central challenge, uh, I did uh, take a great deal of interest in that. And California, uh, interesting, which really makes the point that it isn't just one person. Uh, California has more institutional capacity to deal with air pollution or climate than anywhere else probably in the world. And that happened because there was a lot of smog in L.A. Uh, Reagan was governor. Uh, Nixon was president. And that smog had just pushed people to the point where we've got to do something. And at the national level, that was the Clean Air Act. At California level, it was the Air Resources Board. When you put those two together, state and federal, um, the exception was granted to California alone that this state could make more stringent auto emission standards because of the unique uh, smog and air pollution we had. We still have uh, non-attainment areas. So because of that, this Air Resources Board was created. And when I came in as governor, I started appointing people. One of the people I appointed early on in 1978, Mary Nichols, is still there. She was the one under Schwarzenegger, and she was there during my eight years. She's still there. So uh, we have a lot of scientists. We have a lot of uh, technicians, policymakers, and people who've been thinking about air pollution, uh, greenhouse gases, climate, methane, uh, you know, soot, uh, all the rest of that stuff. And therefore, because now this is such a global threat, obviously that I would make it a top thing. But it started because the environment to me was not like other issues. A lot of these issues are, it could be this way or it could be that way. But what's the environment is more like a physical law. Uh, you know, you, you, the whole habitat, the species, uh, how the air, the rain, the poison, all that stuff, those are physical laws. And you just can't uh, disobey them uh, with impunity. So you've got to get on the side of nature. You've got to work with nature. And this, to me, had almost, a th it wasn't theological, but it had the same ultimate grounding. This was not something you could fool around with. It's something you had to understand and respond. So I always found the environment along, there's so many things in politics, you can go this way or that way, you know, and politicians do. But on the fundamentals, like our climate, uh, you gotta get on the side of science. And uh, that's why I took such an interest in it, and that's why I continue to think it. Any comments, Anne, on the first governorship, the second governorship? Well, I wasn't the around for the, the, the first. But I, I don't think Jerry does give himself enough credit because he is someone who, it wasn't just, oh, everyone was talking about the environment and so I started talking about it. I do think he has a unique ability to understand uh, issues and see them before other people do. And the satellite was along those lines, that if we had done that back then, it would have been a, a, a great thing, and they called you Governor Moonbeam. But you stay, you read so much, you know so much, and you uh, think always about, you know, the next 10 years, the next 20 years, and uh, so I, I, I think you're rare in that sense, that you're so able to govern a state and react to what's happening, but to always think beyond, and I think you were uh, thinking far ahead of what other people were, and I think a lot of the policies you put in place 
made California now, why we're so much better on efficiency standards, appliances, all these things are laws that you help put into place. So um, it wasn't just you were going with the flow. I do think you think ahead. No, but things happen. For example... Um, <laughs> he doesn't want to take any... The, the Reagan and the Republicans wanted to build a lot of nuclear power plants, and they couldn't get them sighted. So they wanted a one-stop shop. And so uh, Reagan created this as governor, an energy commission. No, no, he didn't. The legislature put it on his desk. He vetoed it once or twice. Then we had the Arab oil embargo. It became a big issue. And Reagan said, okay, we've got to do something. So, but then the legislature created not just what Reagan wanted, but an energy and resource conservation commission that had a lot of power to cite power plants and to emphasize appliance efficiency standards and building standards and a lot of other things. So he signed the bill. But it didn't go into effect I was sworn into office on January of 1975. So I appointed the first person and built up that whole energy commission. And that's good. And the same thing with the Air Resources Board. It began to get more aggressive when I got there. Uh, but all this stuff, it's building blocks. And I do, I do take them a little further than some might. Uh, some people even think they wonder about that. Um, <laughs> by the way, I was just thinking of my, my 1980 presidential three points so I think since no, none of you remember it, I'm going to repeat them to you. <laughs> they are protect the earth, explore the universe, and serve the people. I thought those were three, <laughs> three good little points. So this may be a little bit of a sensitive question. Gavin Newsom, yeah. high-speed rail, the water plan, the tunnels. How is the current governor behaving towards your important projects? What's, what's going on here? Well, I'm going to tell you what's going on. <laughs> the first thing... You are? Past governors don't really comment on current governors. That's okay. kind of a, a thing we handle. And I want to say something about high-speed rail. China has built 5,000 miles of high-speed rail. We've got... You know, we're still working on our first 100. Uh, this is not a California problem. This is an American challenge. And we want to be if not the major power, certainly right up there at the top. And uh, China is committing itself to thousands of miles of high-speed rail. So if you're going to have any kind of a green deal, new or otherwise, you've got to have a big rail program for freight, for people, high-speed, regular speed, subways, California, New York, Washington. That is where the future is. If you look at the traffic, it's bumper to bumper. It's going to get worse and we're not going to expand the freeways. We've got to get off oil. We've got to be zero carbon in the next 20 to 25 years. Well, you, how are you going to fly those airplanes? You've got to reduce their number. That means you need trains. Trains so, that run on clean energy. On all, they're no, all, no, all on renewable energy. energy. It's uh, all renewable All electricity. Right. Like we're going to do Caltrain. Caltrain, we've got the $2 billion. Pretty soon it's going to go faster, cleaner, all renewable energy, and very quiet. So that, you know, that's an idea that America has to belly up to the bar. Otherwise, we're not real. Now, uh, we have in Washington now uh, a plan, which I totally object to, where you want to protect the carbon, uh, the fossil fuel engine, the, the combustion engine. China, on the other hand, is becoming the leader in the production of batteries and electric cars. If we don't watch it, we'll be bailing out the coal industry, and in five to seven years, the electric car will be the standard, and they'll all be Chinese. So just from a point of view of national um, uh, positioning, 
uh, we have to deal with high-speed rail, with alternative energy, with battery, uh, with all the other new technologies that require investment, first by government, most of all by the private sector. And it has to be that collaboration. So that's what I think about that. As far as the water, um, you know, two tunnels, one tunnel, uh, it's all how much water you want. I can tell you this, that those 100-year-old levees that are protecting, you, know, you have levees that keep out the bay, the salt water, as the water comes down to the farms. By the way, it's not just Southern California. 40% uh, of Santa Clara water district comes from the Delta, comes through the Pat Brown Aqueduct. Okay, that's where it comes from. Uh, the city of Livermore gets 85% of their water from the Delta. Now, the Delta is this place near Stockton in that general area, and this fresh water comes from the Sacramento River, comes along, and then gets into the pipe that my father built, okay? But the water is protected before it gets in the pipe, before it leaves Sacramento River, by a bunch of old dirt levees. We're going to get sea level rise, or we're going to get an earthquake, and they're going to fail. And when they fail and the salt water pours in, Santa Clara's not going to have enough water. Silicon Valley's not going to have enough water. Nor is Livermore. Nor are the farms of California. Nor is Los Angeles, Orange County. It will be a $500 billion catastrophe. So what I'm talking about here is insurance. Like it or not, someday you're going to have to get it done. You know, we can go back to the Indian times. We had 300,000 people living there. But we got 40 million. And the only way you can live with 40 million is with design and technology and efficiency and elegance. And that's the purpose that I think of whether it's high-speed rail or the water project that would channel water unthreatened by sea because you're not depending on old levees that have to break. There's so much we could talk about here, and we're getting to the point where we need to wrap it up. So I want to thank you so much, not only for being with us tonight, and Gust Brown and Jerry Brown, but for both of your service for so many years for this state, for the nation, and really globally on some very important issues. So thank you for all you've done. And again, thank you for being with us this evening. Thank you. Thank you. You have been listening to Insights, a production of the Commonwealth Club of California. Today's broadcast, Making Great Public Leaders, includes segments from two club programs, Congresswoman Jackie Speer and An Evening with Governor Jerry Brown and Ann Gust Brown. Listen to the full conversations on our website at commonwealthclub.org podcasts or find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and everywhere you hear your favorite podcasts. If you found this program thought-provoking, please join us in person at one of our many upcoming events. Become a member of the club, think your way around the world with our travel program, or find out more about the thousands of podcasts we host on our website at commonwealthclub.org. Event producers for Congresswoman Jackie Spear were Kara Iwahashi and Georgette Gayhew. The event producer for Governor Jerry Brown and Ann Gus Brown was George Dobbins. Audio engineers for this radio program are Justin Norton, Arnav Gupta, and Mark Kirchner. Thank you for listening. I'm Gloria Duffy, President and CEO of the club. We'll soon be back with another Insights program to explore interesting topics with our remarkable guests. 